as I said, uh, my name is Andrew Clausen, and I'm one of the pastoral fellows here at Christ Community, and I primarily spend my time at the Leewood campus. Um, um, I'm married, I've been married for almost five years, which is exciting, to my wife Greer, who is here, and um, we have a son, Owen, as I said, who's three and uh, three and a half now, uh, which is also really exciting, and we're about to have our second, who is uh, a little girl. She'll be here in hopefully less, less than a month. Um, otherwise, she's going to be overdue, which I don't know if any of us want that to happen. So um, why don't I open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started here this morning. Father, we ask that as we, uh, as we approach your word, Lord, that we would do so with reverence and with um, a posture of humility and an ear to listen, um, an ear to hear what you have said before to your saints and to your people, Lord, what you are saying to us now. Lord, we recognize that you even give the grace just to hear what your word is saying. So, Lord, we pray right now very specifically that you would do that. Lord, we pray that you would impress upon our hearts the good news of Jesus Christ as we see it unfold in the scriptures. And, Lord, I pray that you would quicken our hearts to hear what he's saying to us, that we can actually take this word and live into it and live it out in our lives every single day. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, um, later on today, um, it's kind of a, been a busy weekend. We had a conference for those of you who got to be there this weekend, which was exciting. And then a few of us on the pastoral team are going to a conference tomorrow morning, so it's a really busy couple of weeks. And my wife and I get to go on a date this, uh, this evening, which is really exciting, um, to a very nice French restaurant. Thank you, Groupon. Um, and we are going to, um, and, and, and there's this, this, this unusual phenomenon that I've seen more and more as I go out to restaurants, or even if I'm just at a coffee shop reading or, you know, doing whatever people do at coffee shops, usually not reading. Um, and that's, that's, you'll see people, um, whether it be couples or friends, sitting at a table who are together and yet they're not together. They're sitting at a table, and they're with each other, and yet, in one sense, they're both doing something where their world and their life and everything their attention is focused on is somewhere else, right? What are they generally doing? They're on their phones. Very good. Okay, so you guys, so, which none of us here have ever done that, right? I mean, none of us have ever um, sat with somebody and actually been on our phone doing something, right? And this isn't just with our phone. Um, this isn't just with our phone. You know, at home... I don't know if any of you can empathize with this, but sometimes you'll be watching um, TV or you'll be on the internet surfing the web and um, your spouse or a friend or somebody um, has a conversation with you and maybe there's some expectations that flow out of that conversation and those expectations aren't met after that conversation happens and you realize you weren't actually in that conversation at all, right? That's never happened to anybody. I'm not getting many nodding heads. No. Okay, you guys are way ahead of me, so that's good to know. Um, let's pray and end it right now. Um, no, so there's this, which, and, and I, I'm not trying to poke just at technology, that technology is the problem in all this. Really, there's, there's always this tension between proximity and presence. We sense this in, in tons of different ways in our life, this, this tension between proximity and presence. Um, I was talking with a friend this week who, um, as he was sitting down to put, his, to put his son to bed, to tuck him in, to read him a story. He was checking his email, once again, technology. I promise it's not all about technology. But he was checking his email on his phone, and his, his son just said to him, Dad, is that important? And his son's like four. Like, he doesn't understand kind of the rules of sarcasm. He wasn't trying to cut, you know, cut him down. He was sincerely asking, is that important? And like a knife to the heart, right, my friend said no. 
this isn't important. You see, even his four-year-old son could understand this tension between proximity, being close, physically close to somebody, and the presence that actually shows a love and a relational component um, that hopefully relationships have. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, most of us desire true presence, right? I mean, everybody wants to know somebody who, um, if something's going on in your life, you can call them, and they will really be there, right? James Taylor, they'll actually be there for you. They're on the other line. We all want a parent or a spouse or a friend who's actually going to be present in our life, not just close to us, not just physically around, but actually be present. And I think this desire, actually, the Bible has a lot to speak about this desire for presence. In Genesis 1 and 2, the Bible will say that, that, that God created all things, and the crown of his creation was mankind, man and woman. And presence in the garden was very good. Presence was full and complete. God's presence with his people was complete. And yet, mankind, men and women, we, 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 we spurned, we turned away from God's presence. We sinned, and the fall happened, and essentially... God removed us from his presence. He exiled us out of the garden, and that presence was broken. And so the gospel that we see here really expressed in our passage this morning is a gospel where God is restoring his presence to his people through his son, Jesus Christ. God is restoring his presence to his people through his son, Jesus Christ. And what we'll find in our text this morning is that God's presence in our lives should actually affect how we pray. God's presence in our life affects how we should pray. Now, let's get caught up to speed, because if you'll notice, uh, for those of you who were here last week and the week before that, and now this week we're in 1 Kings 8. Last week we we touch-pointed, just just barely touched down on 2 Samuel 7, and two weeks ago we were in Judges, right? So how do we skip, you know, like multiple chapters of the Bible in this open here, kind of daily reading um, Bible reading thing that we're doing. We've got to, you know, we've got to do a little bit of a flyover to know kind of where we're at. So the book of Judges, we talked about Samson, and we saw this refrain in, in Judges, if you've been reading along with us, where it says, everybody in those days was doing, uh, there was no king in Israel, sorry, there was no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in his or her own eyes, right? This refrain where, where God's people would, would, um, would sin against God, essentially, and then judgment would happen, and then they'd cry out to God. God would raise up a judge who was kind of this temporary deliverer, and then the cycle would happen again, and again, and again, and again. I mean, it's, uh, you read Judges, and it's painful how they don't learn from the previous judge or generation. I mean, it's just over and over again, just this resounding refrain. So the book of Judges anticipates, hopes for, longs for, ends with this yearning for a king. And then we get to the books of First and Second Samuel, where, where a king is given, right? God gives his people a king. First king doesn't work out so well. King Saul doesn't work out so well. So God then gives them his anointed and blessed king. King David, right? And during King David's kind of up and down, tumultuous reign, (laughs) to say the least, um, he asks if he can build God a house, if he can give God a home. God actually reverses it. He says, you know what, David? I'm going to make you a house, a a, a lineage, a dynasty, a household, as it were, but I'll let your son build me a house when he comes to rule. And that's how we turn to the book of Kings, the books of, of, of First and Second Kings. 
the leadership baton has now been handed over from, from King David to King Solomon. And Solomon, from what we know, most of us know that King Solomon was really wise. God blessed him with great wisdom. God blessed him with great wealth. And so Solomon not only has the promise of God to support his building um, of this temple, but he also has kind of the means and, 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 and um, the wisdom to know how to do that. And so Solomon builds this temple, right? In 1 Kings 1 through 7, we see the leadership baton handed off, and then Solomon kind of comes into his power, and he starts to build the temple. Um, and, and if you're interested in the temple, it's just fascinating study. But our text this morning actually talks less about the temple and talks more about two things. Two things. As we look at 1 Kings, uh, 1 Kings 8, it talks about two main things. It talks about God's presence, and it talks about prayer. Presence and prayer. And so oftentimes we associate this with the temple because God's, the temple is just the symbol of God's presence amongst his people. So as we do that, why don't we turn now to 1 Kings 8. If you have your Bible, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. We're going to pick up in verse 10. And what's happened up to this point is, is I'll read first and then I'll get into that. So read with me. And I, I noticed that I cut some things out of... Out of um, the, the worship folder. So at the end of this, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. We can all rejoice and say, thanks be to God. Okay, that's good. Verse 10, eight, um, chapter 8, verse 10. 1 Kings 8, verse 10. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house. Filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell forever. Then the king turned around and blessed the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised, with his mouth to David, my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen for I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. So we see here, this building project is finally starting to come together. We're going to see if this works. I've never done this as I've preached. Oh, look at that. There's a title slide. Um, we see here in this text, right after the temple is built, God's presence comes and fills the temple. So at the end of any building project, what generally happens? There's celebration. And the people are celebrating in grand proportions. I mean, they're, they're, they're sacrificing animals like to the hilt. I mean, almost unnumberable, innumerable amounts of animals. And they're rejoicing in this good thing. And God actually comes and fills the temple with his presence. And so we'll see two things here in this text that we learn about God's presence. 
God's presence is unmistakably clear, and God's presence is rooted in his promises. So first, let's look at how God's presence is unmistakably clear. In verse 10 and kind of 11, all around there, it says that this this cloud fills the house of the Lord, so much so that the priests have to move out of the temple, this untouched temple that the presence of the Lord has come into as the ark is ushered in. Um, The priests can't even do their priestly duties. They can't do what God has commissioned them to do because God's glory is is so profound in this cloud that they actually have to come out. It was unmistakably clear. And God had, God had done this before in a way. God had been with his people. He had taken them through Sinai. His, his presence would, filled a cloud and a, and, a, and a pillar through the night and the day as they would traipse around, you know, this, this desert wilderness. And here, though, we see this picture where God's presence actually comes to rest. God's presence comes to rest in the temple. So for them, God came and dwelt among his people in the temple. And he made it unmistakably clear that that's what was happening. And I think oftentimes we see this picture of Jesus where there's a lot of questions raised, but I think the Bible would like to say, if you actually read what the Bible says about Jesus, it's hard to deny that something was going on with this man named Jesus. The Bible will actually say that God's presence came to dwell not only in a temple, but more importantly, in a man. And his name was Jesus. So the Bible makes just audacious claims about who Jesus is and what he did. One of them, for example, from John, in John's apologetic for Jesus, he says, the word became flesh and it dwelt among us. It dwelt among us. There's this looking towards um, Jesus who comes, he takes on flesh, God himself taking on flesh, and he dwelt among his people. And the most audacious claim that the Bible makes about Jesus is that God's presence not only dwelt in a man, but God himself, in that man, came and died for those who had sinned against him. Right? And that's what we celebrated last week in Easter. That's what we celebrate in Easter. So we see that God makes it unmistakably clear that his presence has come to dwell, not only in the temple for Israel at this time, but also for us as we look to Jesus, as we look to the one that the Bible claims Um, is God's presence in the flesh. The second thing we see here about God's promise, or excuse me, God's presence, is that it's rooted in his promises. There's this language of promise all over this text. Really, not even just the text we read. Oops, see? This is where you get distracted and then you forget these things. If I get, you guys don't need this. But I'll keep trying to do it. So that being said, God's presence is rooted in in his promises. I don't know why I'm catching some feedback, but. If anybody knows, let me know. God's presence is rooted in his promise. Look with me at verse 15. It says this. Blessed be the Lord God. This is Solomon blessing the Lord. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt... So God's salvation. I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people. So he then goes on to show how, as I said, this was promised from beforehand. That God's presence was promised. And we oftentimes think of, of promise and fulfillment as kind of like our, our, our check boxes on our to-do list, right? We think that, that, our, that promises are like the boxes and, and, and the fulfillment is like our check. And once we do that, it's done. But, but the Bible actually thinks about promises 
far differently. The Bible sees promises as these, as these building blocks that continually build towards this, this bigger and greater thing. They build on one another, even though there's partial fulfillment, looking toward a future reality. Looking toward a future reality. Being from Nebraska, I'm from Nebraska. Anybody here from Nebraska? I do this every time. I'm really sorry for you guys. Um, it's a wonderful place. Anyways, being from Nebraska, Nebraska football is obviously a huge thing. If you know anything about Nebraska, usually it's that we like football. I am one of those, and Nebraska just finished up their kind of spring training, their spring practices. And what, happened, um, what happens at the end of spring, of spring practices is they have kind of this final practice that's a scrimmage. And they've started inviting the general public to this scrimmage to come watch because we're obsessed with Nebraska football. So we come, we'll pay a little money, and watch a practice. So it's Nebraska versus Nebraska, right? I know this is ridiculous. This is you know, self-deprecation here. Please, sympathy. Um, but that being said, they just did this yesterday, right? And what's amazing about this is they realize this not only fulfills some purposes in getting people in the door, but they can bring recruits in. You know, they sell balloons. They sell hot dogs. You can let your kids come for kind of a cheap price, um, and, they, and they play it up. And when they bring those recruits in, they can say, look, look, this is a glimpse of what's to come. The future reality of what it could be like if you came and played at Nebraska, right? They give that same glimpse to us as, as fans. We get to go and say, yes, we are so excited for August 28th, right? First game. We cannot wait for that future reality. And that's what, that's, what we, that's what is happening here with this, this fulfillment of God's presence coming to dwell among his people. It's not just a, a check off the box, the fulfillment is there, but it's actually pointing forward to something much bigger than the temple could ever inhabit. It's pointing forward to Christ. It's looking forward to Jesus and what he has done. We see here in these um, few verses that God has come to dwell amongst his people. He's come, and he's come through on his promises, and he's made it unmistakably clear in Jesus that that is what his presence for us really is. Now, this, this book of 1 Kings, 1 and 2 Kings, was most likely written when God's people were no longer in um, Israel, in the land of Israel, as it were. They were actually probably in exile in Babylon at this time. So God's people are actually um, no longer in the place of promised rest, and amongst all these people who don't worship the same God that they do. And so they're thinking to themselves, where is our God in this time of exile? He seems like he's fallen silent. They're, they're living into this tension of, God, we know you're present, and at one, at, at, in one sense it feels like you're not present. That, that kind of, we know you're close and yet you're silent, it seems like you're not here. What's going on? And so the writer of this text is trying to tell God's people, God has come once to fulfill that promise of my presence with you. But I'm going to come again. I'm going to deliver you out of that place. I'm going to take you to a place where my presence is forever full and complete and good. The new heaven, the new earth reality. This glimpse that we all have to look forward to. And that's the same thing that we need to remember. That in Christ, Jesus said not only, I'm here now, but I will come back again. And I will bring heaven to earth with me. And we will all be able to... Um, sense my presence. Jesus, Jesus says, I will be with you in the fullest sense of the term into eternity. Friends, that is the good news of the gospel that we need to hear, that God has promised to do this. He has promised to bring his presence, that, that he has promised to be with us, to dwell with us once again. Even though he's, he's here with us now in one sense, absolutely. And yet, 
There's a future reality where his presence will be full. Now, I know a lot of this is extremely abstract, and um, I've given you almost no things to hang you know, your thoughts on in terms of what God's presence actually look like, looks like. But I do want to think about a couple ways in which we... I, I, I think I experience God's presence in a unique way. And I just want to share them with you because I think maybe you'll resonate with them. So three ways I think we actually experience God's presence in a unique way today. The first is with God's people. I think it's hard to deny that when we're all together and when we're with other believers that we don't experience God's presence in the everyday, right? That when we come together to worship him, we've, we sense his presence. The second way is through the Bible. I think when we, when we read God's word, we actually come to feel a different sense of who God is and to, to maybe sense him closer to some degree. Or I don't even know what that means totally. Um, John Frame, a contemporary theologian, will say, when we read our Bibles, we actually meet with Jesus. And while that kind of doesn't seem to make sense, in another way, I, I understand what he's trying to say there. And the third way I think that we, we can um, sense a unique presence of God is through prayer. I think when we pray to the Lord, when we ask um, for, our, for what's going on in our lives, when we look at what he's doing in this world and pray for it, we sense him in a different and unique way. And that leads us to our second point. So I'm going to open, uh, turn back over to our second point. Okay, so I'm going to get better at this, I promise. We're going to focus on prayer now. Look with me at verses 22 to 30. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your son pays, sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven your dwelling place and when you hear forgive so Solomon as this celebration is taking place Solomon's response of worship is to pray God's presence has now come to dwell with his people in this temple and Solomon turns to the people or excuse me turns to God and praise. After blessing the Lord, he turns toward the ark, or toward the altar, place of worship, and he prays. That is how he worships God in this, in this instance. And I think this text gives us just these wonderful hooks. Here's where the actual hooks come in. For us to think about prayer. As we recognize God's presence in our midst, God's presence in our lives, through Jesus Christ, he gives us some hooks to understand what prayer should look like. So before we get to those hooks, let me really quickly just give a simple definition for prayer. 
A lot could be said about prayer, but I think the best way to define prayer is simply talking to God. God speaks to us through his, through his word, through the Bible. God speaks to us through his word, and yet we speak to God in prayer. So as we do that, let's think about some ways that this text influences how we should pray as we recognize God's presence in our life. It gives us three things to think about. That prayer should look like, excuse me, prayer should focus on who God is, it should focus on what God has said, and it should focus on forgiveness. Look with me at verse 23. It says this. And Solomon said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you. In heaven above or on the earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Solomon's prayer focuses uniquely on who God is. He says there's no God like you. In a a world where the people around them would have worshipped and celebrated a pantheon of gods, Solomon says, no, actually, God, there's no God like you. You are the only God. You are the true God. The only God in heaven or earth. Solomon focuses on who God is. And the gospel really challenges us to think about our prayer habits. It challenges us to think about what we're praying for. I know, personally, my, my prayer habits generally look like, God, please bless what I'm doing. I don't know if any of you can, can, you don't have to raise your hand, but my prayers generally look like, God, please bless what I'm doing. And here we see this recognition that part of prayer is looking at who God is and what he has done through Jesus. Prayer is never less than asking God to bless what you're doing, but it's so much more. It is so much more. And to focus on what God has done through Jesus is a biblical method of prayer and a good one at that. The second thing that we see is that our prayer should focus on God's promises. Look with me at verse 25. It says, Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David my father what you have promised him. You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. In his prayer, he rests on what God has said and what God has promised. Now once again, I don't know about you guys, but as I said, my prayer generally looks like kind of like a travel itinerary for my daily you know, what's going on in my day or what's going on in my week. But here we see in this, in this text just this understanding that Solomon is, is picking up what God has already said and praying through that, hoping in that and praying through that. So how often do we actually pray the words of the Bible? And I know for me, again, my, my, the way I pray, it rarely looks at what God has already said and pray for it to happen and hope on it and lean on it. I try to be careful um, giving shameless plugs Um, when I preach, but there's a really good book um, by Paul Miller that as a church we actually went through, I think in the last year, um, called A Praying Life by Paul Miller, and his whole thing is really just talking about praying through God's word, praying for people, but through a scriptural lens, and it's an amazing read, it's really, it's not highfalutin in any ways, he's really um, unpretentious, a wonderful writer, Um, but he has this concept of, of praying through scripture that is just unbelievably, unbelievably simple and yet so helpful for recognizing that prayer focuses on God's word. You know, we kind of have this idea that prayer is good and the Bible is good, but you kind of fall on one side depending on where you are on ESTJ, right? Myers-Briggs, right? Prayer, prayer people are feelers and Bible people are thinkers and you can't really be one or the other, but, but the Bible doesn't do that actually. 
The Bible says prayer and the Bible go hand in hand. They walk with one another, lockstep. And that's the picture we get here. And the third thing I want to focus on is that prayer should focus on forgiveness. When we recognize God's presence in our midst through Jesus, forgiveness should be a a central part of our prayer. We see this often in, not only in 27 through 30, but if you read kind of these mini prayers that follow only the, the, the section that I read, forgiveness is this constant recurring theme. He says, here, forgive. It's the baseline of the song. Here, forgive. So Solomon focuses on forgiveness because forgiveness is something that is an inherent need of all people, right? We've all fallen short of God's glory and we have sinned against him. And so forgiveness is this deepest need. And so, once again, I just want to say, prayer never looks like less than asking God to bless what you're doing. And yet it is so much more in that it can look towards who God is, what he said, and forgiveness. If you look at what Jesus promotes in the Lord's Prayer, let's think about the Lord's Prayer just really briefly because it's actually um, extremely informative for what we just read here today. It says, Our Father who, who art in heaven, who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are debtors, who sin against us. Jesus looks at prayer and he says, I'm going to focus on God. God, you are holy. You are in heaven. You're my father. He says, I'm going to think about what you have already written in your word. He goes to daily bread, this concept of when when Israel was walking around during the book of Exodus, God gave them daily bread to live on. And then that, that resounding forgiveness piece at the end where he just recognizes, you know, Jesus didn't need forgiveness, right? Yet he sees in teaching us how to pray our deepest need is to ask for forgiveness. And that's where um, his good news of the gospel really comes in. And that all of us need forgiveness at the deepest heart level. I think we see here in this text, um, make sure I didn't miss anything. (laughs) We see here that God has come to dwell amongst his people. And when God comes to dwell amongst his people, our prayer should be influenced. It should be affected by his presence. It should change the way we look and understand prayer. The gospel makes us think about how our prayer should always have a Godward focus. And not that it's not about us, but that forgiveness piece is like the ultimate part of how we look at our sin in light of God's presence in our life. Friends, this is the good news that we all need to hear, that God God has come to dwell amongst us in Jesus. God has come to give us kind of this, this... present reality that has a future implication, a future reality attached to it. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence in this world and in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would um, yeah, just help us to pray. Lord, help us to pray. You've taught us to pray. Lord, help us to actually pray, to see the good news of what you are doing in this world. Uh, that we would pray through what you have already said and promised. Lord, that we would acknowledge who you are and what you've done in our prayer. Lord, we thank you for your presence amongst us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live into that reality and to hope and yearn for the time when your presence will be complete and full in our lives. pray these things in your name. Amen.